afternoon, America, and welcome to the Dean's List. I'm Dean Bowen, and you are listening to America Out Loud Talk Radio, and it's History Week. History Week during Thanksgiving Week. History on the Pilgrims. History on on this glorious holiday that we call Thanksgiving. Uh, and, and we just felt like it was important to to talk about what Thanksgiving truly is, what it truly means. Uh, I know we have a rich tradition here in America of of just enjoying football, enjoying family, enjoying food, and uh, and being thankful for what we have. Washington and both Lincoln and and Washington, when they gave their their Thanksgiving Day proclamations, their emphasis was on taking time to give thanks to God. Matter of fact, Washington, you know, when when he made this day a thing, he said it would it would be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity, them being us, an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for our safety and happiness. Washington's emphasis, of course, the country's young. It's brand spanking new. I mean, this is his proclamation was 1789. Uh, you know, the the Constitution's just a couple of years old. The, the Declaration is just a few years old. And you know, we we he expressed gratitude and thanksgiving for the country. Lincoln and his proclamation. Um, he expressed gratitude and thanksgiving for the for the country also, but you know what the country was going through at the time. And he said, No human council has devised nor has any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the most high God, who while dealing with us and anger for our sins, he's referring to uh the slavery, among other things, has nevertheless remembered mercy. And so we're grateful, and our hearts are full of thanksgiving. And you know, both Lincoln and Washington said that 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 thankfulness, that gratitude, it should be directed to God. And we look at the very first Thanksgiving, and our focus is on the Pilgrims, uh, and and that's what they that was their emphasis. Their emphasis was on a gratitude and a heart of thanksgiving to God for allowing them to survive that winter. That first Thanksgiving, we, you know, we often look to the, to the pilgrims. I think in order for us to truly appreciate Thanksgiving, we have to ask ourselves who in the world were these people? Who were the pilgrims? And why were they here? Why come to America? Why, why come and 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 lose so many people during that that first brutal winter, but yet stay, and you know have this great big Thanksgiving feast? You lost a ton of people, but yet you're going to have a Thanksgiving feast. And I and it's important that we know who they are. And and by knowing who they are, then we can learn why they came. And, and and not only does this give us a true idea of Thanksgiving, an actual 
historical, factual foundation of why we celebrate this holiday. But this, and, and studying these people, we also get a foundation of the country. We are not foundation deniers around here. We we do not deny that the foundation of this country is rooted and founded in, in biblical morality, uh, biblical truths, a heart full of thanksgiving towards God. And, uh, you know, these people use the Bible to get there. We're not foundation deniers around here. And I, and I think in studying the history and studying who these people were, we're, we're going to see it. You're going to see it. Uh, this audience is going to see that the foundation that this country was built upon. Now, this audience already knows it. This already, audience already knows the Judeo-Christian values of this country. But I think you're going to enjoy hearing the stories of that foundation. I think you're going to enjoy diving into history class this week and studying the stories of the pilgrims, learning who these people were, what they were about, why they were here. All right, let's uh, let's dive into it. To start, I, we can't we can't really start in in sixteen twenty when they arrived. We can't start even in 1621 when they had that first feast. We really have to go back a few years because we have to determine what in the world was happening in the world at this point in time. I mean, the globe is, it's a different place than, than what it is now. And we have to get a picture of, of global culture. We have to get a picture of what was happening in, in the world so let's go all the way back to, to Columbus. Columbus lands 1492, and, and he's commissioned. You know, we, we talked about this on Columbus Day. He's commissioned by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain. But uh, King and Queen over there, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, they had a daughter, and her name is Catherine of Aragon. And in 1502, Catherine marries King Henry VIII. You know King Henry. You've seen the pictures of him. He's the big guy, the big guy with the beard. 1502. Now, this this might be difficult, you know, on radio for you to to hear names and dates. So I'm going to uh, try. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm going to try an attempt to uh, attach some physical pictures in your mind to the timeline. So it's the turn of the century. 1492, Columbus has landed. Uh, he goes back to Spain, you know, with all these, you know, stories of this, you know, this, this people that he just fell in love with. Uh, it, and if you if you didn't hear the the history class on Columbus Day, go back into the into the podcast, pick up the the history class on Columbus Day because the story that we get of Columbus today that he was this genocidal maniac who was just hell-bent on enslaving people wherever he landed is 100% not true 100% not true oh, yeah. when when Columbus landed he fell in love with the people he did not enslave them he he did not steal from them matter of fact he told his men uh, aboard that ship uh, do not give them trinkets for gold. You give them something of value for the gold that they're going to exchange with you. And, and that's the, that was his philosophy. That was his his model. He lands and then you know he he goes back and 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 he he has 
three or four voyages for in the end. And so this is around that time frame. It's the turn of the century, 1502. King Henry takes the throne of England, and he marries uh, Catherine of Aragon. And Catherine is the daughter of Ferdinand and, and Isabella. Uh, Catherine does not give Henry a son. Matter of fact, she gives him a daughter. And, and Henry wanted a son, and he was a little disappointed. Uh, it, it, but, you know, it is what it is. In that time, though, you know, the, the king is like, give me a boy. You, you, you better give me a son because I got to have someone to, to pass this crown down to. But there was no son. Uh, the daughter was named Mary, and they called her Mary the First. We'll, we'll pay Mary a visit later on. She becomes known as Bloody Mary. We'll, we'll pick up her story later. So Henry starts looking around. You know, Catherine is not producing any more children, and he sees this lovely lady. Her name is Anne Boleyn. He starts making eyes at Anne Boleyn, but Anne Boleyn does not want to be a mistress. She's like, Henry, uh-uh, we're not doing this. I am not going to be a mistress, not even to the king am I going to be a mistress. So Henry realizes that you know, the situation with Catherine isn't getting any better. She's not going to she's not going to produce a son for him and he seeks an annulment from the pope. Now at this time these the the, the countries in Europe were, were Catholic. They were under uh under the Catholic religion. They all answered to the pope. What the pope said is what, you know, is what happened. Pope Clement VII in Rome, he's the pope at this time, and he's not going to grant Henry uh, an annulment from Catherine. Now, he says that uh, it was because of scriptural grounds that he's not going to, to grant this annulment. However, there's some speculation that the pope was afraid of the new king of Spain, King Charles V, who happened to be Catherine's nephew. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Pope isn't interested in, in upsetting Charles V. Uh, Charles sent his troops actually to Rome in 1527. And this is right where, you know, we're about this time now because uh, Henry and Catherine, I mean, they're they're married for, you know, several years. Oh, two to, you know, they don't get the, the, the divorce until, you know, the 30s. So they're married for 30 years. Um, but but during this time, we get into the late 20s, uh, King Charles V is becoming more and more powerful in Spain. He sends his troops to plunder Rome in 1527, and then he actually imprisons the Pope for six months. And this is right around, you know, this is a couple years after when Henry, you know, is desirous of an annulment and the Pope isn't giving it to him. Uh, in 1530, the Pope under pressure of Charles, crowns Charles as Holy Roman Emperor, uh, essentially placing Charles over every country which practiced Catholicism, including England. So you've got Charles V, who is the nephew of Catherine, Henry's wife. Charles V, 1530, is he's the, the Holy Roman Emperor. I mean, he, this dude is powerful. And Henry is in this dilemma. 
he he doesn't know what to do. He's he does not have a son. Uh, he's he's with the aunt. He's married to the aunt of the most powerful man in 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 all of the world, essentially, King Charles V, who is crowned the Holy Roman Emperor by Pope Clement. Uh, so it was in 1532-1533 that Henry decides, that's it, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to break away from the Catholic Church. Now, the, he kind of has this freedom to do this because in 1517, Martin Luther, you know, posts his 99 theses. And, and we start to see this breakaway. The Protestant Reformation is underway. So a decade or so later, Henry sees these countries that were once under Catholicism are starting to break away and and be a part of Protestantism. So Henry says, that's it, I'm, I'm doing this. I am also going to break away from the Catholic Church, and I'm going to begin the Church of England. And in doing so, he declared himself the head of the Church of England. Thank you, Protestant Reformation, Henry says. Thank you, Martin Luther, for opening this door for me and giving me the opportunity to break away. And now that Henry is no longer uh, answering to the Pope, he's now the head of the of the Church of England. Well, he can do what he wants. So the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Kramer, nullifies Henry's marriage to Catherine. Now, make note of this. Uh, Thomas Kramer, who 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 allows this this essential d- divorce to happen, uh, is happening to the mom of of Mary, Mary the first, who will who will become known as Bloody Mary later on, and this this ties into the story. So this makes Henry free; he's free to marry Anne Boleyn, and so he does that on January twenty fifth, fifteen thirty three. Uh, although. Anne Boleyn follows in the steps of Catherine of Aragon and only produces a daughter. And her name is Elizabeth. They name her Elizabeth I. She's born September 7th, 1533. So Henry didn't waste any time. You know, January 1533, he marries Anne Boleyn. And boom, come on, let's have kids. And so Elizabeth is born in September. Henry's disappointed about this because, you know, Henry VIII, he needs a son. He uh, can't have daughters. This is this is why he he wanted to divorce Catherine. This is why he broke away from the Catholic Church and started the Church of England so he could do his own thing. And uh, he marries Anne Boleyn, and she gives him Elizabeth. So he's bummed out. Also during this time, it's important to know that the English Parliament uh, has passed a couple of acts. The first act uh, in 1534 is called the Act of Supremacy. The Act of Supremacy, this gives Henry the title. He's not only the head of the, of the Church of England, but the Act of Supremacy gives him the official title of Supreme Head of the Church of England. And all subjects in England were ordered to take an oath accepting this. That, all right, Henry is now, he's the king, but so he's over us governmentally, but he's now over us spiritually. And uh, and this is an important thing. It's a very important thing, which we'll 
we'll get to the reasons why here. The second act that Congress passes is the Treason Act. And this is also an important act. It, it made it a crime to accuse the king, in this case Henry, to accuse him of heresy or tyranny. Mm -mm 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 -mm. So we see this, this one national religion coming into play here. And, and this affects our First Amendment. This is why uh, the Founding Fathers did not want a national religion, because as king, Henry was over it. And, and, and he was the supreme head of the church, and everybody, all the subjects, had to take an oath acknowledging and accepting that Henry was over them religiously. And then Congress passed the Treason Act, which made it a crime for anybody, any of the subjects, to accuse the king of heresy, of, of being a heretic, of, of going against the Bible, essentially. As the, as the head of the church, the king could no longer be considered a heretic. I mean, I don't know if people considered him a, a heretic anyway. Uh, and the, he also could not be accused of, of tyranny. Mm, and if if that were the case, then 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 you died. You 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 had your head chopped off. You were beheaded. Listen to the to the absolute tyranny that this is. You can't accuse this man of of being a heretic or being tyrannical. You can't accuse him of of doing things against the Bible or or being um, a despot. You can't accuse him of the things he was doing. That's the point. If you accuse Henry of the actual things that he's doing, off with your head. Off with your head. All right, we'll pick up more of this story on the other side of the break. You're listening to The Dean's List on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Spike proteins help viruses enter into your cells, disrupting your health and your well-being. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body of spike proteins, which allows your body to repair from within, supporting your immune and respiratory systems and regulating your inflammatory response. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. In 2008, people could spend an average of 12 seconds on a task without becoming distracted. Five years later, it was only eight seconds. The digital age is narrowing our attention span. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top, shoot it down. Thousands of five-star reviews proves it works. Supercharge your brain and see the difference. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. 
back to the Dean's List. I'm Dean Bowen. You are listening to America Out Loud Talk Radio, and it's Thanksgiving week. And we're in history class. And some of you are asking, Dean, for the love of Pete, why are you going all the way back to King Henry? I mean, just talk about the pilgrims for crying out loud. I mean, this is the these are the kind of questions I would probably get if I were, you know, in in, in high school teaching a history class or maybe middle school. Mr. Bowen, can't we just learn about the pilgrims? Well, here's the deal. It's important to to know the culture that these people grew up in. It's important to understand the framework of the world that they grew up in. Because if we see what was happening in the world, we see what's happening around them. Then we get this picture. We we This clear picture starts coming into focus as to why these these people actually would would want to leave and come to this place that they knew nothing about. I mean, they packed up their families and came to a place they had never been before. Only heard rumors, only heard stories. But they did it because of the, the conditions of what they were living in. They did it because of the conditions of society. They did it because they wanted freedom. Uh, And we see here that Henry was indeed tyrannical, and he was indeed a heretic. But you could not, uh -uh, mm -mm, you couldn't say that. And if you did, off with your head. So Congress, you know, passed the Act of Supremacy, which gave Henry the title of Supreme Head of the Church. And then it passed the Treason Act, which made it a crime to accuse the king of being a heretic or being tyrannical. You can't accuse him of heresy or tyranny. Now, during this time, again, this is the this act is passed in 1534. So Henry, you know, the the at this time the only Bible that they're using is, is the Roman Latin Bible. And Henry's counselors start saying to him, you know, if you would start using the English Bible, it would really uh, solidify your your breakaway from Rome. Now, the interesting thing here is I think 1525, William Tyndale begins to copy the Bible in in English. He, He creates an English translation of the Bible. 1525. This is before Henry is broken away from the church, from the Roman Catholic Church. And Henry's pretty upset because, you know, he's still part of, of Rome. He's pretty upset that Tyndale is making his own translation of the Roman Bible in English. Oh, you can't do that. Uh-uh. It's got to be in it's got to be in Latin. The Bible can only be in Latin. So Henry has Tyndale literally hunted down and uh and, and and killed. As a matter of fact, I think Tyndale was burned at the stake. I'm gonna have to double check my facts on that. I'm pretty sure Tyndale uh I'm pretty sure pretty sure Henry had him burned at the stake. I mean uh but you know you can't accuse Henry of being a heretic. You know he's gonna he's gonna hunt down William Tyndale and have him killed all because Tyndale is translating this Bible into English. Oh, here it is. 
1525, William Tyndale began printing an English translation of the New Testament. Henry VIII ordered him hunted down and arrested. Tyndale was strangled and burnt at the stake on October 6, 1536. So this was you know, a good 11 years Henry's hunting for him. A good 11 years Henry's on the hunt. When he finally finds him, they strangle him, and then they bring him at the stake. Uh, I mean, you know, so after this period of time, now we've got this English Bible who Henry, you know, killed the author of, or um, the, not the author, but the translator. And then Henry's advisors start saying to him, you know, uh, it's probably a good idea that you actually use that Bible. Because in, in doing so, it'll really show that you are officially that, that that you are breaking away from Rome. So now Henry starts using the Bible uh, that the translator uh, Henry had murdered. Henry had strangled and burned at the sea. He's like, you know what? Uh, this can be useful for me. Uh, yeah, I know I killed him. I know I had him burned at the stake. What a horrible way to die. But let's take his work and let's use it so we can really solidify our breaking away. But that had a problem. There was a, an, an unintended consequence to that problem is that people could then start actually reading the Bible. Now, the Bible wasn't disseminated to the masses, but it was you know, brought into church, and uh, the, the, the ministers would read it from the pulpit. So as they're reading it, you know, the people are like, hmm, this, this doesn't seem like, I mean, Henry doesn't seem to be following what the Bible actually is telling us. Oh, oh, oh. And the more that they read the Bible, the more that they realized there that Congress had passed a treason act, which made it a crime to accuse the king of heresy. But when the people started hearing the Bible, they realized the king was a heretic. They realized this guy truly is evil. He's a despot. He's tyrannical, and he's keeping us under his thumb. Hmm. But you can't. You couldn't say anything. Otherwise, off with your head. So now, Henry's married to Anne Boleyn. She's given birth to Elizabeth. So now he has two daughters, Mary the first from Catherine, and now Elizabeth from Anne Boleyn. Uh, and and they keep trying, and Anne Boleyn has three miscarriages, and Henry's like, I can't keep doing this. I need a son, and I need him now. So Henry accuses Anne Boleyn of treason, and he has her beheaded, off with her head, and she's done. He accuses her of treason just because he accused her. Well, you know what? It must be a thing. Then Anne Boleyn's got to die. And this woman that he supposedly loved, he has he has killed, murdered. And I don't think it was, you know, he didn't love her. He wanted a son. And she wasn't giving him sons. So after Anne is dead and gone, he marries Jane Seymour, who finally, finally gives Henry a son. They name him Edward VI. And so when Henry dies in 1547, he has three more wives. You know, I'm not going to get into all the six wives of Henry. Um, the, the first three play a role because they had children. All right, the first two had daughters, 
and the third, Jane Seymour, not the Jane Seymour we know and love, uh, Jane Seymour gives birth to Edward VI. So Edward becomes king in 1547. So now we're halfway through this century. Edward is king. Uh, but he doesn't live very long. I think he's king for, I don't know, 9, 10, 11 years. I'm not sure. that the it, it was not a very long reign. He was young when he took the throne. He, be, he becomes sick. He dies. But, but before he dies, he chooses his successor. Uh, it, it's his first cousin. Her name is Lady Jane Grey. And he chooses, he says, I want her to be queen. Well, he's got two older sisters. You know, he's his oldest sister, Mary, who becomes Bloody Mary. And then his second oldest sister is Elizabeth. But he doesn't choose these two sisters to be his successor. But he still chooses a woman, Lady Jane Grey. Uh, so how do you think Mary feels about this? Mary's like, what? You're not, I, I am your, I am not only your older sister, I'm your oldest sister. And you're going to choose our cousin, who, by the way, is also a woman. At least you could choose a man to be king. Then I might be afraid to, to, to have a coup. I might be afraid to, to put on a coup and, and, and take over the throne. I don't know. She probably wouldn't have been. I mean, she sounds, she sounds pretty, pretty ruthless. So uh, Lady Jane Grey is only on the throne for nine days, and she's ousted by Mary's supporters. Mary is is a ruthless individual. She is, I mean, she's perfect for this role uh, because she is um, calculating. She gets rid of Lady Jane Grey. Then she marries Philip II of Spain. Philip II is the son of Charles V. I don't know why they have these Roman numerals behind their names. I'm Philip II. I mean, you weren't the second you were like the first Philip. You know, your dad was uh, never mind. So he's the son of Charles V, which makes him, which makes Philip II the most powerful man on the on the planet at this time. He inherits the the global Spanish throne. His dad was the Holy Roman Emperor. So Philip is now also the Holy Roman Emperor. So during this time, Mary, who's married to Philip, is attempting to bring England back under Catholic rule. And this is where she gets her name Bloody Mary, because she just starts wiping people out to do it. She kills over 300 religious leaders. And then also she killed Lady Jane Grey, by the way, because you, you got to kill the previous queen. I mean, you can't leave her alive. She's got to go. Uh, and this, of course, you know, it, it gives her the, the nickname Bloody Mary. But she also had burned at the stake Thomas Kramer. Well, who was Thomas Kramer? Thomas Kramer was the man who said that her mother, Catherine, and her father, Henry, that that marriage could be annulled. It was Thomas Kramer who allowed for the divorce. And so she has Thomas Kramer burned at the stake. She's like, dude, mm -mm. if you wouldn't have done this, then all of this would be mine anyway. I mean, she's she's pretty upset, and she's bitter that Henry divorced Catherine, uh, and and then that Henry, um, 
married uh, Anne Boleyn and had a and had a daughter, and then that Henry had her executed and married uh, Jane Seymour and had a son, and then that son became king. So here is Mary the First, the bloody one, you know, just biding her time. She has to sit under King Edward. She's not happy about it. Then she has to sit under Lady Jane Grey. She's like, uh-uh, nine days of this. Let's let, you know. And so she wants to bring England back under uh Catholic rule. And uh and in order to do that, though, she just has to kill people. In order to do that, she has to find Thomas Kramer and burn him at the stake. She has to hunt down all these religious leaders and burn them at the stake. And, of course, Philip II, you know, he's on board with this. He's like, yeah, this this is, this is great. Because Philip now realizes, as husband to the queen, that England, um, England actually should belong to him. Mm-hmm. England should be his. But something happens along the way. Uh, you know, Mary is not alive for very long. I think she only rules for five or six years. I mean, she dies in 1558. So she she takes the throne in 53. Yeah, so five years. Uh, so who, who becomes Queen of England? Well, it's not Philip II. Um, I mean, he married into the throne. He felt like it belonged to him. But when Mary dies, the, the queenship goes to Elizabeth, to the third child, the third offspring of Henry. Uh, and she becomes Queen of England. Now, this is what we're getting closer to, to the pilgrims here. You know, 1558, uh, I don't know that the, you know, all of the pilgrims are, are born yet. Some of them, though, are being born into this and they're, they're, they're being born into this, this history and this tradition of tyranny, this history and this tradition of, of religious tyranny and religious despotism and government tyranny, governmental despotism, where Kings and Queens are vying for thrones. And if they're not going to get the throne, then they're going to just start killing people when they do. And, and we're going to see that it just leads to all-out global war because um, Elizabeth is now on the throne and Philip II from Spain feels like mm, the throne should be his. But before we get there, in 1558, Parliament passes another act. And that, I mean, Parliament, they just, uh, you know, the, the, the king and queens of, of England just had this ability to maneuver parliament like pawns and, you know, and get them to, to pass all the acts that they wanted them to, you know, to pass the, the treason act and the act of supremacy, you know, which made King Henry just the man on top of the world. Well, now here we are in 1558 and parliament passes the act of uniformity. So yes, in England, people could read the Bible in their very own language, but no, people could not believe whatever they wanted. This was the whole point behind the act of uniformity. This act required all persons to attend the Anglican church, and you had to attend the Anglican church once a week. If you did not attend the Anglican church once a week, 
you would be fined 12 pence, which in that time, 12 pence is a lot of money. And and the people couldn't afford that. I mean, you had to go to church. If you if you didn't go to church, you had to pay the piper financially. And these people are poor anyway. Uh, and Elizabeth is out there going, yeah, uh-huh, we're just going to, they got to attend this church, which, of course, I'm the head. As the queen, I am the, I'm the supreme head. Uh, the act also required the use of the English Book of Common Prayer, and it set the order of prayers. So whatever day it was, then you had to read the prayer on that day. It was a crime punishable by fines and imprisonment if you conducted unofficial services. All right, so now you're getting an idea. You're getting a picture of, of what the pilgrims are growing up in, of the society that they're growing up in. This act is passed in 1558. We're not that far away here from, from the 1600s now. We're only 42 years away. And this is the groundwork that is being laid. Um, as a matter of fact, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the, 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 the travesties that, you know, that took place when people attempted to conduct their own unofficial services. I mean, that was there, there was some pretty horrible stuff going on. And this is what the pilgrims are are trying to leave. Um, and, and then you have Philip. Philip is still pretty upset that England is not his. He thinks it's his. And he's gonna he's gonna come on pretty strong with some all-out attempt to take England for himself. And then we're just gonna have this global con uh, conflict. But all right, we're out of time in this break. We will pick it up in the next segment. You're listening to The Dean's List. It's History Week on America Out Loud Talk Radio. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with Oxy Powder. It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why Oxy Powder is our number one seller. It worked. Go to AmericaOutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Oh, 
Welcome back to The Dean's List. I'm Dean Bowen, and you're in History Week on America Out Loud Talk Radio. We're talking about the history of Thanksgiving and the history of pilgrims. But uh, to get there, we have to we have to define and describe and paint a picture of society, of what life was like leading up to and during the, the, the departure of the pilgrims. Why in the world were they coming to America? And we... Well, we began this story with with King Henry VIII marrying the daughter of Ferdinand and and Isabella, king and queen of Spain. Catherine of Aragon is her name. And Catherine uh, gives birth to a daughter. Her name is Mary. Henry doesn't like this. He wants a son. Uh, He, you know, vies for an annulment, finally gets the annulment, and then marries Anne Boleyn. Man Boleyn doesn't uh, give him a son. She gives him a daughter who's Elizabeth. Henry's not happy about this. He accuses Anne of treason. After Elizabeth is born and three miscarriages, he accuses Anne of treason off with her head, has her beheaded. Finally, marries Jane Seymour, who gives birth to a son, Edward. And Edward becomes king when Henry dies. And you can't think that Mary the First is happy about this. Bloody Mary is not happy. She... Um, uh, because when, when Edward dies, he doesn't choose Mary to be his successor, not his oldest sister. No, he chooses his first cousin, Lady Jane, Lady Jane Grey. Mary's like, uh-uh, nope, not going to do that. I've been waiting long enough. This throne should have been mine. You know, Lady Jane's gone. And then, of course, she has her executed. And then in the process, she marries Philip II of Spain, who's the son of Charles V. And she and, and Philip decide they're going to bring England back under Catholic rule. Of course, Philip is the Holy Roman Catholic Emperor. He's pretty much over the whole the whole shebang. So Bloody Mary, as she's known, because she starts you know killing religious leaders, including the Archbishop, who annulled the marriage between her her dad and her mom. And this guy's got to burn at the stake. And so you know Thomas Kramer burns at the stake. Over 300 people she she has killed, but she's only on the throne for five years before she dies. And then who should take the throne but the last surviving sibling of Henry? That is Elizabeth I. So she now has the throne. Uh, Elizabeth, in 1558, <clears throat> convinces Parliament to pass this act, which... Uh, you know, it's it's the act of uniformity, and it, it makes it illegal for you not to attend the Anglican Church. You can't do your own thing. It's not enough that Elizabeth is the sp- the supreme head of the church. It's not enough that all the subjects, ha- you know, are forced to acknowledge she's the head of the church. Everybody now has to attend the Anglican Church. That's the act of uniformity. We're all one. We're going to make it a law that we all must be one. We have to fall under this uniformity. But if you do not attend an Anglican church, you will be charged 12 pence. And if you if you try to practice, you know, and have some other services on your own, where you're going to be fined and you're going to be punished, I promise you, you're going to regret it. You know, that's her, uh, that's her angle. You know, she wants to bring England back under the Anglican church. Now, back to Philip II, who was married to Bloody Mary. 
he proposes to um, Elizabeth. He says, hey, how about, you know, you become my queen and I'll become your king. And she says, uh-uh, uh, no, because Philip wants to bring England uh, back under Catholicism. And Elizabeth is like, no, I, I kind of like this. I like being the supreme head of the church. I like ruling everything on my own. So the answer is no, big fella. I I'm, I'm, I'm not going to marry you. She declines. Now there's this undercurrent that's starting to spread. And Philip starts to think, hmm, uh, the Queen of Scots, you know, the, the Queen of Scotland, her name is Mary. She happens to be Elizabeth's first cousin. And there's this, this rumor that reaches Elizabeth's ears that Philip and the and Mary, Queen of Scots, are planning to a, a wedding. And that would then allow Philip to lay claim to the English throne if he's married to Mary, Queen of Scots. These rumors reach England of a possible plot to assassinate Elizabeth. Well, when Elizabeth hears this, she just starts executing people. I mean, she goes all Bloody Mary on them. She executes dozens, including her first cousin once removed, Mary, Queen of Scots, in 1587. Yep, the same year that Parliament passes this Uniformity Act. She, she has Mary, Queen of Scots, assassinated. Uh, Elizabeth's fears of being assassinated were not unfounded. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they were accurate. Uh, during this time in France, there were numerous attempts to assassinate the, the French king. And also at this time, Elizabeth's reign, uh, during this reign, Catholics went into hiding because they realized, oh boy, here we go. Elizabeth's going to start doing what, what her older sister, Bloody Mary, did. Bloody Mary had, had the Protestants executed. Now they fear Elizabeth's going to do this to the Catholics. And so they start, they start fleeing. Well, uh, you know, years have, have gone on here, and, uh, you know, Philip's not happy about this. He is not happy that, um, you know, that Elizabeth has denied him. He's pretty upset about it. He's not happy that he does not have the throne. And so he unleashes his, his full might and full power. In 1588, Philip, the second king of Spain, who was the most powerful leader in the world at the time, sent his invincible Spanish armada to invade England. Spain's threat to England had been so great that Queen Elizabeth felt the need to make a treaty with Spain's enemies, the Ottoman Turks. The Spanish Armada consisted of 130 ships with 1,500 brass guns and 1,000 iron guns, carrying 8,000 sailors and 18,000 soldiers. I mean, this was a massive fleet. They were planning on picking up another 30,000 more soldiers from Spanish Netherlands on their way to um, annihilate England. Spain's Dunkirk privateers raided the English and the Dutch ships. Queen Elizabeth relied on Sir Francis Drake, Sir John Hawkins, Sir Martin Forbisher, and Lord Howard of Effingham. 
Uh, these gentlemen had smaller vessels. They were faster than the Spanish Armada and more maneuverable vessels. They were able to elude the enormous Spanish galleons, which attacked at the port of Plymouth, England. After Spain's initial attacks, the English counterattacked. Sir Francis Drake's smaller, more maneuverable vessels proved difficult to catch. The Spanish Armada regrouped on the other side of the English Channel near the French port of Calais. The fast flyboats of Dutch Admiral Justinius van Nassau captured two Spanish galleons, whose deep drafts put them at a disadvantage in shallow waters. With weather getting to, uh, stormy and, and, and rocky and... Um, you know, it was, it was getting rough out there, no deep water port. The Spanish Armada anchored off the coast in a tightly packed defensive crescent formation. They're like, you guys aren't getting through. We're going to get in here tight in a crescent formation. Anyone comes through is getting hammered. However, at midnight on July 28th, 1588, Sir Francis Drake positioned eight ships upwind of the Spanish fleet, set them on fire, and let them drift downwind toward the anchored Spanish Armada. In a panic, the Spanish, uh, the, the, their ships, it would, uh, they, they, they cut their, their anchor cables so they would drift apart. The next morning on July 29th, the English attacked, and in hurricane force winds and dangerous currents, uh, they scattered the Spanish Armada carrying the sea battle north towards Scotland. So the Armada is just like, what in the world is going on? I mean, they were anchored in this crescent formation, tightly packed. No one's getting to them until these burning ships start floating downwind. And they're like, holy cow. They cut anchor and they cut ties and they start drifting apart. And at that moment, this, this hurricane gale force wind comes in. But the English have these smaller boats and, and they can maneuver better. And the Armada is in trouble. As the Armada was blown along the northern coast of Scotland and down the western coast of Ireland, gale force winds dashed the ships against the rocks. The Spanish Armada suffered 56 ship, sh ships wrecked, sunk, or captured. Ten ships scuttled and over 20,000 dead from battle, storms, and disease. So uh, half of their Armadas wiped out. I mean, half. Just gone. When King Philip II of Spain learned of the loss, he exclaimed, I sent the armada against men, not God's winds and waves. But guess who answered, big fella? Guess who answered? As a result of these losses, Spain suffered several bankruptcies. A coin minted in Holland in 1588 had engraved on one side Spanish ships sinking and on the other side men kneeling under the inscription, man proposeth. God disposeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, you know, they were wanting to do the same thing to Holland. And 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 we'll get into it later on. We'll see that they did. Had Spain won, all right, if the Spanish Armada and, and Philip II are victorious, it's speculated there would be no Anglican church, no Puritans, no pilgrims. No New England and no United States. North America would have remained an extension of New Spain slash Mexico. Yeah, there would not have been uh, an America at all. Um, I mean, if, Sp if, if Spain wins, 
then history does not unfold the way it does. Spain does not win. Spain loses. And Elizabeth retains the throne. But in retaining the throne, she is now, you know, the supreme head of the Anglican Church. And in the defeat of Spain, uh, England now becomes a superpower under Elizabeth. And this now becomes the age of England. Uh, Holland, of course, you know, is is right there on their coattails, but it's England. It's England that that rises. It's England that becomes victorious. It's England that that conquers. It's England that takes the new world. France, you know, it's it's England and, and France. They're they're right there vying for for power. They're vying for control of the new world. Now Spain still has their um, you know, they're they're still a placeholder. You know, obviously they still you know have South America and you know and they still have some some, some spots. Florida. Uh, but it's England is now the new rising power. England is uh, England's on top. When Elizabeth died in 1603, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who's King James VI of Scotland, he is crowned King James I of England. And this is where we get King James. So he unites the entire island. He's now the King of England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland. Um, though he was tutored by Scottish Presbyterians, King James rejected Presbyterian concepts of limited government, and he wholeheartedly embraced the divine right of kings. And this is what he declared. Kings are God's lieutenant upon earth. They sit upon God's throne. The king is overlord of the whole land, master over every person, having power over the life and death of everyone. This is the philosophy of, of King James. And it was essentially the philosophy uh, of Elizabeth before him. Uh, during Elizabeth's reign in 1593, Puritan separatists Henry Barrow and John Greenwood were found guilty of violating the act of uniformity. You know, it was Elizabeth that said, you know, it, that got Parliament to pass the act of uniformity, which which basically, basically said, you know, you had to attend Anglican church once a week or be fined 12 pence. And you had to, you were required uh, to use the English Book of Common Prayer, which set the order of prayer. If you didn't, then it was a crime punishable by fines and imprisonment. And you could not conduct unofficial services, which Puritan separatists Henry Barrow and John Greenwood were doing, and they were found guilty of it. Uh, and they were executed. They were just, they were killed. And that was under Elizabeth. So when King James finally takes the throne, you know, he says, I'm God's man. I'm I'm his lieutenant on the earth. I sit, King James said, on God's throne. So it's as if King James was God. I mean, if you sit on God's throne, uh, you kind of have the attitude that you're God. 
He said, the king is overlord of the whole land, master over every person, having power over the life and death of everyone. Guess what, you people? I have power over your lives and I have power over your death. I can allow you to live and I can allow you to die. And King James I demanded religious uniformity. Or he said in his words, I will, quote, harry them out of the land. So King James followed right in the line of Elizabeth, who followed in the line of Mary, who really followed in the line of her dad, King Henry VIII, demanding religious uniformity, demanding that uh, people acknowledge that the, the, the king, in this case, as the supreme head of the Anglican Church, and if you did not do it, he said, he had control over your life, and he had control over your death. This is the world that that the pilgrims are, are, are living in. And, and also, you know, just as a reminder, the Bible is now in English. And these people can see that what these tyrannical leaders are doing, it, it's not biblical. It's not right. It's not what it's not what God has dictated. And they're claiming to sit on God's throne, but but the people are saying, mm, this doesn't sound like God. I mean, you're you 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 claim to sit on his throne, but your words don't sound like him. Smart people. Smart people are beginning to understand this. And it's important that we understand it. It is important that we understand the times that they were living in. And so we've spent some time going back to to England in the 1500s. We've spent some time understanding uh, why exactly they would want to leave. All right. History class will continue tomorrow. Thank you for joining me today. That's all the time we have. Encourage your friends and family to get on the Dean's List. Let's unite to renovate the age.